Welcome to the Coach's Plan podcast, Plan to Coach with Coach New Brunswick. I'm Ashley Milani, your host. Welcome back to our second last episode of our third season. I can't believe we're almost to the end of it. Um, I'm very, very happy today to, to welcome two guests to the studio. And by studio, I mean my loft in my little house and, and a Zoom call. Uh, we have Dr. Ornella Nazianduki-Imana, who is an associate professor of human kinetics at St. FX, uh, who also studies Black Canadian sports history. And also joining us is Rhonda C. George, a researcher at York University and ex-basketball student athlete working on Black women's experiences in sport. So I just really wanted to say thank you for being with us today. Um, and I look forward to, to chatting with you guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks for having us. Cool. Um, before we get into like the main bulk of our conversation, I wanted to ask you guys about how you how you got started in sport and um, and what kind of led you to pursuing a, a career in sport. Um, okay, I can start. I was um, I mean, I've always liked sport. Uh, it was always something that I don't know, I suppose, brought me joy. And uh, and there was this a funny dynamic, I guess, also in my family where I was the tomboy, the young. I mean, we're only girls. Uh, my siblings are only girls, but I was the one who sort of broke the mold. And I suppose sport was the thing. Um, being younger, wanting to to kind of the youngest and wanting to to demarcate myself possibly is there. Uh, but beyond that uh, self-psychology uh, there, um, I, 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 I've always been drawn to sport. I played as much sport as I could possibly play, uh, you know, during um, high school. Um, just mostly organized uh, soccer through the school. Uh, not much else in terms of uh, organi organized sport, just because, you know, being able to afford it. Um, but... Uh, I pursued it into uh, university uh, with the kinesiology degree, a human kinetics degree at uh, Ottawa U. And I didn't really go into it because of the sport. I, I, I think initially it was, a, it was definitely more of a med, med school thing. And this was a good science degree to have as, as background. But then it became definitely about, oh, my gosh, this whole field, this whole study of the human movement, and then somehow ended up um, on the history side of things and trying to just dig out these stories that have not been much um, studied in, in Canada about Black uh, people in sport, especially through the 20th century. And so... Yeah, it's, it's a long journey of just being fascinated by what we call sport and playing it in watching it and just wanting to being curious and wanting to find out more about about it and why it, it, it is the phenomenon that um, that that it is. I can, I can really relate to that, especially on the um, understanding like what sport means to people and and like why I cry when I watch the Olympics <laughs> and, and, and like why, why um, these organized, organized or informal kind of, yeah, games can, can really lead us to a lot of human development and a lot of self-development. I think that's probably the coolest thing I've, I've seen come out of my coaching career. Um, mm -hmm. But before I get on a rant with that, Rhonda, <laughs> tell me about your, tell me about your sport background and, and where you're at now. Okay. Uh, from as early as I can remember, I was an athlete. Um, in my family, everybody plays some kind of sport, mostly soccer or running. Um, but I always loved basketball. Um, 
I played as often as I could on every team that I could throughout high school, on club teams. Um, and then I played uh, in college in Ontario. Um, and then I transferred to university. And at that time I was planning on going to medical school. And so I was like, I've really got to focus on sport. Or, sorry, not sport, on uh, my grades because grades are everything if you're trying to get into med school. And so I had informally or reluctantly retired from sport at that time and was just studying, studying, studying. And then when I got to my PhD, I was really trying to decide what I wanted to look at. And during that retirement process, after when I started undergrad, I all of my peers who had gone on to the States to play, I was very, very interested in the diverse stories that I saw. Um, some were very successful, others were not. You know, some had, you know, gone pro and, and done all kinds of things, but their stories were so diverse. And as I was, you know, starting my PhD and researching, I realized there's very little about the narratives of Black Canadian women who pursue these athletic scholarships in the US and, and go on to play abroad. And so I really wanted to really look at their athletic experiences, their uh, social experiences, their academic experiences, and really capture those stories, but in a, I guess, a nuanced way, because much of what was out there was so focused on males. And even within the Canadian context, I find just the narratives of Black athletes, period, aren't really captured that well, or as well as they are in the US. And so I really wanted to address that gap with my research. That's great. I, I think that's really interesting that both of you started uh, your your journey through this uh, going towards med school and then got veered <laughs> off by 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 sport. I think that's kind of cool. It's almost like um, when you said uh, your the study of human movement, my brain went to, and now we're talking. We're going to be talking about the social movements. So I think I, they're obviously very interconnected. Um, but I'm not sure that everybody always makes that first connection of why activism occurs in sport and why it is um, often a place that that a lot of movements start from. Yeah, before before we get into that, let's start talking, uh, maybe set up a bit of a, um, a context around around some of the history of, of sport in Canada and underrepresented groups, underrepresented voices. Um, maybe, Ornella, I'll pass it off to you to start to talk a little bit about um, some of the work you're doing and some of the, the uh, uh, studies that you've done around around this. Right. Um, so yeah, we could definitely spend a long time on <laughs> officially, basically don't get me going, but the first <laughs> uh, is, um, I mean, sport did not start as this neutral thing that was open to everybody. Uh, modern sport is, uh, as we're talking, which is what we're talking about right now, not necessarily all the uh, physical culture practices that you could find in all kinds of um, civilizations and groups and, uh, and, and, um, and, and societies from time since time uh, immemorial, right? But um, just modern sport as this thing that kind of starts in the uh, late 19th century with uh, uh, the British and the, the, the Europeans or Western Europeans and uh, this, this, this organized um, physical culture uh, activity practice that 
um, we see today and we, that we call sports today did not start off as this democratic, you know, open space. It was a space that was open for um, men, uh, upper middle upper class men, um, white men, um, and it was a, a space that they they basically um, designed to showcase their um, their their superiority, to show that they had time and the luxury to engage in what is at the end of the day, I mean, it breaks my heart to say this, but sport is useless at the end of the day, right? It's it's not something that is, that, 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 that does, well, I mean, it doesn't accomplish anything unless you add some meaning to it. Because uh, when we're talking about sport, we're talking about, you know, injuries and, and hitting people or just running around in a circle and, and injuring yourself in terms of like, um, fatigue and muscle fatigue. So ultimately, it's not some kind of health activity. It's a social activity. It's a cultural activity to which we've tied, we've tied all kinds of meanings to. And in, this, in that initial origin, it was about showcasing that, look at us, we have the time and the ability to engage in this meaningless activity um, and, and of course, then we're putting this, uh, this brand on it uh, as a class uh, status um, um, symbol. So, so it's, it starts off as being about men and upper class men and white men, a, a way for them to, to differentiate themselves from all the other groups that they, they kind of stand over, uh, which means that all the other groups, when they make their way into it, they change the meaning of it. When you have women entering in it, men have to renegotiate the, 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 the standard that they've set that if they can only, if they are the only ones who can play it, then it makes them superior to women and, and it, it reinforces the notion that they are physically and also mentally and also socially superior and should be there. But if women start playing in it and succeeding and evolving, um, developing in it, then it questions all of those, those, those standards you've set up uh, to it. And the same goes with class. If people from lower classes start playing it, then you can't push, you can't put it on, on top, you know, over them as something that um, that is only a status symbol. Um, you you also then have with race, the fact that if they start entering, um, if if other groups that are not white start entering and succeeding in it, um, then you cannot, you can no longer claim that you being able to play it and succeed in it is evidence of your superiority. So you have to change the script. So, so, so all of that is baked into what then sport becomes and, and continues to be, which is the space where um, you have people trying to negotiate all kinds of um, racial, uh, racial, gender, class, sexuality, um, uh, ability, uh, 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 you know, uh, meanings and what it means to, to, to who, who should be on top and who, uh, who, who should take up space in the social kind of sphere and so on. So just narrowing it down to race, historically, um, people of color, uh, black people, um, 
pe uh, people of, uh, of Asian descent, uh, indigenous peoples were, 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 were kept out of sport um, because be, them being in sport and them succeeding in it could undermine the notion of white supremacy. Now, once they entered and entered in droves and, and were succeeding, the, 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 the script had to be changed to say, well, okay, so we can't no more say that we are being, we're able to play this and it makes us intelligent and it shows how physically um, uh, literate we are. We are now going to remove that and say that them being able to succeed in it um, is evidence of their, their, I mean, their, their basic nature. That well, you know, an animal, a, a lion of whatever, a leopard can run really fast. It doesn't make it more intelligent than me; it just makes it more of an animal. Um, and so that's how it gets uh, reinterpreted in, in terms of racial, um, at least in, in terms of uh, especially black athletes, because on one side they were kept out because they weren't supposed to understand sport, and then when they clearly understood sport. Um, they remove the component of intelligence or um, mental capacity that went with it and made it about an additional evidence of Black people being clearly just these basic, more animalistic um, factions uh, of, society, uh, of society. So, so, so all of this taints the entry of people into sport because um, not only this ideology, which most people are not even aware that they, they kind of have and the, this reading of uh, sport that, that they have um, or inter um, the, this uh, interpretation of performance that they have, um, but it also simply affects, it also does go in, in, in tandem with the fact that just in general society, there was a, uh, a power differential. So if sport is, does require some kind of, um, um, you know, uh, some kind of status to access or some kind of um, money to access, then it did disadvantage certain groups over others. And if we're especially talking about money and the resources it takes to be able to once again, engage in this relatively meaningless activity instead of, you know, going and finding shelter, you know, making sure you have shelter and food and security, those basic things, um, then it disadvantaged um, minority groups, especially racial ethnic groups, um, because they were, they were not able to, to secure the resource, those extra resources that would be necessary to practice sports. Um, and certain sports were more accessible than others, of course, like, um, Early on in the 20th century, you see people in, um, you see more people in sports like baseball, which was a very popular sport, more like a pastime as the US calls it, you know, the America's uh, number one pastime. Uh, it, it's something that could be practiced without necessarily, you know, you don't need a club to go and, and play it the way you would for a uh, golf, for, ex for example, or you don't need all these very exclusive spaces like um, like uh, like swimming or or um, or, you know, uh, polo or something like that, you know, something very elite. Um, so sports like uh, like like baseball, sports like um, 
track and field became the most accessible early on. Uh, the first black uh, athlete to represent Canada um, at the Olympics, for instance, at the highest level, I suppose, of sport at the time, or at least amateur sport at the time, was uh, in 1912 in sprinting, in, in track and field. He was a 100, 200-meter sprinter. Um, so, so those sports, they um, you find many Black uh, representations, um, you, you women start also making their entry in those sports, softball, baseball, or or track and field early year into the 20th in, in the 20th century. And it takes a bit more time to go into other sports because it's really about a cycle. You see yourself more or you see yourself succeeding more in uh, track and field or baseball. And so you go towards that. Um, boxing is another one where they were really uh, most represented early on, starting in the 18, late 1800s and, and continuing on into the 20th century. Um, and these are sports that are that don't require many resources, right? They, they're accessible. Um, you can punch, you can learn uh, to this, the, 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 the tactics, you can go into the ring. Um, you, you, you can run, you have, I mean, at that time, you don't have spikes, you don't have all these sophisticated equipments that these days you, you may need, even though it's still these days, it's still more accessible than something like hockey, of course. But still, at that time, you definitely just really can you run, do you have a flat surface, you can do track and field. Um, and, and so these sports became the most attainable, the most uh, readily available, and it creates almost like a, what you know may be termed a flight of well, where white people see these sports being um, integrated, and they kind of avoid them as a result, and kind of leave them to the groups to the to the black people, saying, well, it must be a thing that they can only do, so I'm not even going to try anymore. So it creates, it's a whole thing uh, there as well, again, kind of a vicious circle where, you know, down the road into the 1980s, um, the, the landscape looks very different from, you look at a Team Canada um, uh, track and field in, in 1920 and Team Canada track and field in 1980, and it's a very different um, it's a if it's a very different uh, photograph. It's a very different image, um, but that's not reflected in other sports because those barriers still exist uh, in swimming, in diving, in rowing, in in all of these other sports. That cycle of I see myself succeeding there, therefore I'm going to go there and keep succeeding there and go there um, doesn't happen in other sports because. Those, um, those doors are never really that open. So you may have one person here and there, but they never really kind of um, do, do open the doors for, for everybody to, 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 um, to enter. So, so it's, um, it's been an interesting journey from the early, uh, the late 1800s to now, where it's, it's a whole, it's, it's a series of negotiations of, Okay, so what does it mean to be in the sport? Okay, now we've make it, we, we can enter, but entering doesn't mean succeeding or, or entering doesn't even mean acceptance. 
you know, being on a first on a team uh, on the team in 1912 um, for 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 that athlete who 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 was the first one to represent Canada as a black person did not mean it was over that civil rights were attained and that, that you know um, that everybody could go home and that there was no more need to fight. Right? Um, it definitely didn't because again that interpretation was always at the back of well, yeah, of course you can do that because you're black, you can jump higher, you can do faster, you can do these because you are inferior. It's actually not removing, you know, the barriers, not removing the the prejudices, but also actually enforcing it. So that's where sport becomes very complicated because we imagine it as this equalizer that everybody is at that line and they're equal. But it doesn't actually mean that when when we when we still when the meaning of whoever crosses the line uh, first is different for depending on who that person is and what they they look like. So so you know my 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 research much of my research has really shown that odd you know yes okay they're here they're they're playing the games they're. You know, sometimes they're acclaimed and, and they're in the papers and people are, 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 are very elated that they're winning for Canada or for their club or whatever, but um, they're still going home and not being given a job um, the same way their fellow uh, amateur athletes are being given jobs in recreation fields or to coach or something like that. They're still not giving, uh, given a job. They're still not being... Um, you know, they're still having to go through the back door for a ceremony that is actually their own, uh, their orders being celebrated. So, so all of this is, is meaningless. It, it, it's meaningless to accept someone on your team to run for you and get you that victory if you're not actually really getting that person in your team and allowing them to really just engage um, with the system the way you are. Uh, the way you do too, and it can move up um, into it, um, and can can really influence that that system. So, so that's often the, just the refrain of they're in, they're on teams, they're they're you know at the surface level they're there, and the picture looks different, the the, the team kind of that looks different, but um, it doesn't really mean much in terms of real life and just regular people who are not athletes, um, it's still a, a very difficult path for these athletes through the 20th century off the field, um, sometimes on the field as well, very much on the field as well. So it's, uh, it's a complicated kind of uh, history there. Sure. Yeah, I think you did a great job of um, really laying clearly out how how the system uh, has has caused a lot of these problems and like and like right from the very get go, sport has not been a has not been a, like an equal welcoming place. It it people talk about it being the great equalizer and and saying like isn't that great as long as you work hard and push yourself like you can make it to the make it to the top. Well, it's like no, that's not really the case at all. Some people have a lot more hurdles of them in front of them uh, than than others, and um, some people have uh, roller skates on and and rockets attached their back and <laughs> and so so uh uh Rhonda before we move on to this uh, our next question I'm gonna do you have anything to add on this this kind of history piece yeah I just think it, it's very important to recognize the ways in which black athletes in particular if we're thinking about um you know the work of Ben Carrington 
how they've always been constructed as creatures of the body and not of the mind. Mm -hmm. And how that thinking continues to, to be pervasive and to permeate and shape how athletes end up as players, but not owners, right? Um, that structural imbalance is something that has followed Black athletes since they showed up on the scene. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, like you said, they, they are players only. They never, they're not given a chance as coaches because coaching means thinking and mm -hmm. thought as thinkers. They're not thought as leaders. They're not thought as, you know, as intellectuals, as, as people who think. Um, and, and that's the underlying reason why you may see them a lot on the field of play, whatever that may be, but they're not necessarily in the boardrooms. They're not, they're not the coaches, they're not on the sidelines because there is that underlying notion of, yeah, sure, you can get them to run and jump for you and do whatever uh, they need to do, but you can't have them dictating the jumping and, and, this, and, and, and strategizing and doing uh, all the... Um, all the planning that a coach is required to do or, or um, putting together a team or things uh, that administrators are, are meant to do. Right, right. They're not allowed to share power mm -hmm. or to hold any kind of power, right? And we have to think about what that means. Yeah. Yeah, um, I like a lot of the work that Coach New Brunswick does is centered around trying to get uh, underrepresented voices in coaching uh, up to the table and, and figuring out ways to reduce the barriers for them to to uh, follow uh, careers in sport, um, especially for women who uh, are often are often kind of seen as as volunteers or or maybe like helpers on the team, um, maybe a team manager, but yeah, so often or so rarely seen as as a coach or a head coach um, for for a number of different reasons. And uh, that's a lot of the that's some of the questions I'd like to dig in with you guys is is how do we kind of create those spaces to to lift others up and and give voices to those who are not being heard. So so maybe so maybe I'll start around like like to me. I don't know, especially from the from the the events of the last year and a half, I'll say um, last four or five years, maybe even uh, like diversity inclusion is our terms that are thrown around all the time. But like, what does that really mean? I feel like sometimes they're thrown around a little bit too loosely to, for you. What is what do they mean? I think for me, it means diversity and inclusion means a few things. I think it means that you have to grapple with the roots of how these institutions or how sport as an institution was built, but then also the legacies that the way these institutions were built have left behind for um, those in positions of power, but also those who are among the subjugated, right? And then I also think part of diversity and inclusion work, if you want to call it that, mm -hmm. um, is using that knowledge to engage in uh, redress and true systemic change so that the institutions or sport as an institution actually reflects the needs and the people within sporting communities. Um, and then I think lastly, that diversity and inclusion has to be robust in that the inclusion is actually real and that those from historically marginalized communities, like they have the space to show up as their true selves 
while also having the room to help inform the culture, the trajectories and the norms within sporting institutions. So I think it means a lot of things. I think in a lot of ways, when we're talking about diversity and inclusion, it's usually very surface. And I think we need to do a deeper dive in what that actually looks like in practice. Yeah, no, absolutely, exactly. To me, those two things are very separate. I think they're often served as, well, yeah, you know, one follows the other and immediately, but one, is definitely more aesthetic than anything. Diversity is about making sure that you know the, the the picture looks slightly different, that the brochure looks different, um, uh, and, and it's it's surface level. It's getting people in, not necessarily listening to them, but having them in the door so that you can say, "Look, I've, I've I have people in," and then inclusion. Um, is in actual integration, listening to people, considering inequities, not equality, not saying, well, yeah, let's get everybody in together, but realizing that because of the traditional way things have been done and the historical legacy of, of the systems we've inherited, um, you cannot treat all the groups the same. They have to be given what they need um, in order to actually Seed. Um, and some may need to be given more than others because, you know, the, in order to actually reach, um, reach where the others have, have already, uh, um, already stand because the inequities mean that at the, at the present time, not everybody's standing um, on, the same, uh, on the same starting line um, equally, you know, uh, well aligned. So it's really about not not just having people sit at the table, but listening to them when they're speaking and implementing what they say, not gaslighting them, right? Not not telling them they're imagining things, not having them to have them, but to actually listen to them and to be prepared to dismantle and change. Um, and I think that's the biggest, the, the most difficult part of this is um, uh, referring to the the famous quote by um, by by American thinker uh, Audre Lorde, you know, the master's tool will never dismantle the master's house. If we keep doing the same thing the way we've been doing it, how is it supposed to change? Because the way things have been going is how we've gotten to this mess in the first place. So we have to be prepared to change things, to not work the way we've been working before, because the way we've been working before is anchored in these Eurocentric um, white supremacist um, uh, um, uh, structures. And again, that's to, to, to slow down there. White supremacy doesn't mean tiki torches in the street screaming about <laughs> You know, what was it? We will not replace. No, you will not replace us. You know, that's not what white supremacy is. White supremacy is simply systems that are set up to benefit um, whiteness, to 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 enhance whiteness, to as you know that same whiteness is the default. And this is done by regular people, good people with you know nice, cute dogs and nice children who teach. Um, and, and, and our good people who give to charity, right? It's not about crazy people in, in sheets. It's about really 
systems that have been connected to enhancing certain people and not others um, while making them think that this is the norm. So it's about, in, in, you know, inclusion is about actually changing those systems. And it may end up looking very different than what we used to. And it's about getting comfortable with the notion that norms doesn't mean natural. Norms is just what we're used to. Um, doesn't mean that's how we should end and finish and, and, and continue. It, 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 if it needs to change, it should, we should be ready to change. And that's a, that's a place that many, many institutions are not, are not yet at, right? You see the government, you see the whole truth and reconciliation struggles. The whole issue with them is that they're like, yeah, okay, well, you, you know, we're, we're going to say we're sorry, but then keep doing things the way we've been doing them because we're not really ready to grasp the extent to which um, we actually need to completely turn around um, um, and, and, and dismantle things in order to, for them to work uh, better. Um, we're not there yet. Most institutions are not there yet. It's it's a it's a road. It's a road we're we're kind of still. I mean, we're not. Some are not even engaged on that road, let alone you know navigating it. Mm -hmm. uh, the the point you made around uh, if they're not ready to change, then then it's not re real. That totally hits home in my in my brain. Um, yeah, if, it, if it's all talk and saying, yeah, we're inclusive, yeah, we welcome everyone, that's great. But unless they're really willing to put action into it and put their money where their mouth is and, and make some systemic changes that could uh, that could drastically like change the way they've typically done things and, and then be okay with that discomfort and change. And, and I like the word dismantle. Without being ready to dismantle things, it, uh, it's really hard to see anything being that meaningful yeah but isn't that what we normally do in the canadian context in regard to one the colorblindness but two the symbolic anti-racism where we do these grandiose things to make it look like we're actually doing something but when we look at the policy when we look at the numbers when we look at the money nothing is actually happening and yeah. so i think in the in the canadian context in particular because we live in a multicultural, and I say that in quotes, uh, context. I think this task is is a little bit harder because we are so married to this idea of of colorblindness, and we like to give these these platitudes of what we aspire to be, rather than actually reflecting on what we actually are doing. Yeah. Absolutely. Coal blindness is, is one of my least favorite words in the English language because exactly it's like, no, it, listen, there's color blindness um, as in the actual medical uh, uh, condition. And if that's what you have, you should go and have that looked at because otherwise you should see color. There's nothing wrong with seeing color. See color and address it see people and recognize the struggles they may be going through because of their color. That's how you help them. You don't just ignore it and say, well, yeah, no, I don't see it because that means you're ignoring 
the the the, the things you actually may need to do in order for um for, for them to 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 thrive. So so absolutely, colorblindness is it just doesn't work because you need to see people in order to actually help them in order to address the issues and and burying it um won't, won't make it go away. Uh, again, it's all of these things are done in good conscience. Oh, well, yeah, but I don't see, no, see it, see that I'm black, see that that person is Asian, see that that person wears a hijab, um, and then just move on beyond it. Um, don't just kind of ignore it, because that means you'll ignore that the, the, the things I will face, or that person will face, or um, that woman will face, and, and, and we won't, we'll be back at square one. Um, I think many people who navigate, many minority groups that exist in, 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 in spaces that in which they are very clearly the minority, um, very much learn um, that they're, uh, that the, just to, they're always uncomfortable. They're always on edge. And, um, and frankly, especially speaking from my experience, I've always preferred, I prefer someone who tells me how it is. And um, wh when I know where I stand, instead the Canadian, Canadian society is very difficult to navigate sometimes because you always have these people with good intentions that then don't hire you, that then don't, you know, will, will evaluate you differently. Um, all because they still think they're good, you know? So it, it, it is much better to face someone who's actually hostile because then you know where to put your foot than moving into a room in which you don't know who's actually going to trip you up because everybody is, 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 has a smile on their face. Um, so, so yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, it's kind of a dangerous place to be because Canadians don't take data, they don't. They don't actually count out. They're, they're afraid to mention race. They're afraid to, to actually go there. Um, and it doesn't, clearly, it doesn't address much because at the end of the day, when you then take data, you find that, well, who's mostly like, most, most likely to be arrested, most likely to receive harsher sentences, most likely to not be hired, most likely to not be promoted for arbitrary reasons that we can't recognize because we're so colorblind. Yeah, I, Canadians are polite to a, to a fault. That's, that's the only way to say it. And to that point, I think that many, many Canadians uh, have grown up in a, in a almost like a, like a British kind of culture where it's like, hush, hush, be very stoic. Don't, don't show too much, don't share too much. Um, and I think that leads to a lot of people being very uncomfortable having uncomfortable conversations or having conversations that would challenge their norms or challenge their biases and and they simply don't know how to start having that conversation or don't know how to address it appropriately or or um with and and show people that they have either the right intentions to change or to kind of open up that line of dialogue how do we how do we show people that it's okay to start having these conversations and uh they don't have to uh, feel attacked by having these conversations. It is just it, an opportunity for people to start opening up and and really sharing what's out there. And and like you said, exactly showing people where they stand and and what's going on, rather than kind of like tiptoeing around the issue and hoping it'll go away, which it will not. <laughs> um, I think such deeply entrenched systems are really hard to dismantle. 
but they still need to be disrupted. And I think people in positions of power, I think they need to use their privilege to work for and insist on structural change. Um, and in that process, I think they can also work to amplify the voices of those who are marginalized, um, but also provide support and protection for those who belong to marginalized groups and are pushing for change. Because a lot of times when you are the only racialized person, you take a lot of hits and there's a lot of extra marginalization that happens because you are the lone wolf. And so I think those who are in positions of power or who are among the privileged need to kind of absorb that shock for you know, more marginalized coaches or those in leadership positions who are trying to implement change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There's that stepping in, there's that interruption that people with, um, with privilege or with, um, with power who are in a room should step in and interrupt, you know, interrupt the room and say, why, why does the room look like this? um say something about it keep pushing because recognizing that these things were implemented over a long period of time so you know nobody out there is expecting it to change overnight but it's about keep, keep you know being consistent and being pers um, persistent about it not speak up once and say well you know i brought it on the table once 17 months ago and um I did my work because it's a consistent kind of thing that needs to happen in order for any kind of change to, to happen. Absolutely. And I mean, in terms of, of, of systems and in terms of individuals, it's a bit different. I think, um, I mean, I suppose, obviously, even though, um, I think I start in my sociology class, I start with bringing it home that systems are people. There, you know, systems are made out of people, good people, people again with pets and who are nice people who write to their mom and you know things like that, right? But um, but but you know, a system becomes so nebulous that that it becomes a bit uh, you can't really point a finger at someone. So it's about people in those systems pushing for the systems to recognize where they stand um, and 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 the issues that there are. And you know, taking the uh, um, gathering data about themselves, having numbers. Um, a big thing with Canada is the lack of 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 numbers about racialized groups and understanding. Um, you know, not just counting them out, but also understanding their experiences within it. So you know, it can be as simple as counting out but also gathering the understanding what the the experience of those people those few people who are in the system what what the, their experiences are what are the the push points what leads them to to not grow as a group within you know amidst uh the 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 the, the majority um get, gathering data about the people who are in um, the people who want to come in, the people who leave, that's especially a big, a big part of it. It's, you know, why do people leave? 
make sure you 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 take it upon yourself to say, well, it's not just about the fact that um, that person was just a bad worker. Um, ask them why they choose to transfer, why they choose to leave, what you know, because th that's even richer than those people who, who actually stay. Um, and just having the information to work with as systems and uh, reckoning with the history of, of, your, of your institution, your province. I mean, New Brunswick, um, I, I, I'm not a specialist of New Brunswick, but I, I, I have looked at a lot of Canadian history and New Brunswick used to have um, settlements, uh, you know, uh, black settlements. Uh, around there, uh, especially uh, before the Civil War, uh, you had uh, refugee groups and you had loyalist groups uh, who settled there, uh, but they never stayed very long. They were eventually pushed out. Um, the, the province is not homogeneously white because of natural reasons, right? Um, it, it, there's a reason why the province looks the way it looks. Um, it, it, so, so it's it's about understanding that the, the conditions, modern conditions are not an accident with the province wide or within the system itself. And, uh, and it's not about bringing people and forcing them in for that diversity look good brochure thing, but it's about simply understanding how, um, if someone knocks at the door, they can come in, they, they can be, um, they can be welcomed in, um, and it's 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 about reckoning with the the fact that colorblindness doesn't work. Address the issues head on, um, and it's about also just um, mentoring people outside of our circles. Coaching a lot of the times is about you take you know uh, a young athlete under your wing and you. You build them up. You give them the skills. As coaching, a lot of coaching doesn't happen, sort of on Zoom, right, or or like behind the desk, right. A lot of coaching is is on the field. Is is people mentoring you, um, and it's about mentoring more than your your circle outside your circle, uh, ensuring that there's a variety of youth of of young. Uh, coaches that that get given the opportunity to rise up um, and to, to to make those connections uh, because like in any system it's always about connections and networks and uh, minority groups don't have as many of as those um, do not present themselves to panels um, in the appropriate way because they're they're not mentored properly they're not given the chances properly. So then they look like they're not polished or all these other, you know, kind of code words, uh, but because they're not taken under wings. So it's about opening up those wings uh, to more people. Um, it's a slow progress, but eventually makes a whole lot of difference if you actually nurture uh, a variety of people instead of the same old people um, all the time. Um, understanding that sport at the at the point of at the point of tryouts, there's already there's been a lot of barriers to the point where the people who show up at tryouts um, are are a small pool of people compared to who started out. Um, so so it's it's about sort of 
knowing your community, who shows up, and 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 why those who don't don't show up. It's not about making sure that everybody goes into rowing or something, right? Not everybody's gonna love rowing. I personally like solid ground, um, so ice, water, all those things that do not happen on just solid ground do not really, you know, I have issues with. But but uh, but it's it's about just giving a chance to exposure to to more people than just the the the, the good old same group of people. So. It's, it's a few different strategies that all really just begin with reckoning with why the situation is like this is not because of some norm of some natural effect. All of this is, is manufactured. There's a reason why things look the way they do, rooms look the way they do, um, the tables look the way they do, and we to change it, we need to actually reckon with it. Um, and be comfortable with being uncomfortable with these subjects, right? Yeah, I totally agree. There's there's a couple points that you touched on that I I really want to highlight um, around, especially how like we don't know enough about the the coaches we have in our in our system, and I don't think that's just like knowing their experiences. I think that's just period. Like I don't think any any and. I, I have lots of uh, lots of colleagues that work for national sport organizations, um, but I have no problem saying that like they don't know who their coaches are. There's simply too many coaches to keep track of, and sure they may have a database of as many as they can, but then there's some that work as a volunteer on the side, and there's like there's such a wide periphery community that supports sport uh, that is undocumented and and un. Um, yeah, unrecognized, not supported, not celebrated. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of like the, the, the work gets lost is because you really only see, just like you said, when people show up to tryouts, you see such a small portion of the group from that giant pool that's already been selected out. And the same thing goes for, for coaches, uh, whether it's at the top level or even just at the grassroots level, there's such a wide community that, um, either doesn't get that invite to come up to the next level or isn't uh, kind of taken under someone's wing, shown like the code to get in and and uh, and given those opportunities to move forward and to keep learning and to keep advancing. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's a really good point. Also on colorblindness, it, it reminds me a little bit um, some of the conversations around uh, around the LGBT commun community around like it's like, okay, that's great if you're gay, but I don't want to hear about it. Don't shove it down my throat kind of thing. Like, it's like, are you kidding me? Like, if people aren't able to bring their full self to the table and feel like they're truly appreciated and for who they are as a whole being, then how are they supposed to feel like they can thrive in, in a community like sport? So yeah, yeah, that that was just kind of piquing my my interest. And then also right now in New Brunswick, we're having uh, lots of local municipal elections. And recently, uh, by recently, I mean the last few months, an organization or a movement has started on Facebook uh, that's like Women for Fredericton City Council kind of thing. And it's been just encouraging women over the last uh, five or six months or so to get out and and run for for local local um, councils and and get involved in, in municipal elections in politics, talking about like our, our really long standing um, uh, 
whiteness and and maleness in our in our local city council and and how they're trying to change that and going through the facebook comments a never go through the facebook comments or twitter comments no. such a such a toxic <laughs> place but, but but people going like oh like i don't i don't vote by, based on genitals and it's like okay no you shouldn't based on genitals but you should be looking at the types of people who are representing the community and you're if you're seeing only one type of person representing the community that's not representative of what the whole community is made of so you can see that there's going to be a problem there um mm -hmm. and then yeah i i won't i won't get that much further down this conversation line because <laughs> i could go on for a long time about this but uh yeah no i think i think that um the the tokenism is something i see i see quite often especially in sport where uh, and often too in, in sport where it's so much volunteerism and people are just happy to have people on board. It's often people just pulling their friends in. So you're really getting that kind of in-group continuing mm -hmm. to just uh, to be on boards and be in coaching roles and all that kind of stuff. Um, and and so to to look at it and say, we're not just, we're not just uh, bringing people on to check boxes. It's like, we really value what they bring and, and um, have, they have a lot of perspectives on, on things that we wouldn't have considered. Maybe it's around, transportation issues for games and practices maybe it's uh, uh financial accessibility maybe it is uh cultural like there's without without bringing those voices to the table like how are you gonna know mm -hmm. like it, it doesn't make any sense yeah no absolutely it, 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 that whole idea of the you know initiatives that want to diversify along all kinds of of um social categories always going to get pushbacks like what do you mean targeting women that man wasn't elected because he was a man or or you know um what do you mean lgbtq like i I'm, i have struggles too and it's 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 that whole and and the, and the question of privilege um is always about well no i'm not privileged i have problems and skirting over the whole notion of privilege has nothing to do with you have a perfect life right it just means all the issues you have in your life are not based on this issue, right? So heteronormative privilege means, yeah, I may have many issues, but it's not based on my sexuality because I'm a heterosexual person in a heterosexual uh, world. Um, you know, it, it's, it's about these things that many people um, are still grasping with and, um, and just setting it up um, for setting up all groups to have their best foot forward, right? Um, so, so that tokenism is so strong because when when you put on initiatives like those, but don't explain to the to the group and the system within which they're coming in that um, that they are done because everybody else already has a step. Um, or is five steps ahead and they're just given, uh, they're being given uh, an aid, uh, resources to reach out, to, to reach those, uh, th th that same level. It's always interpreted as, well, no, they're being only chosen because of who they are. And therefore it means diversity uh, equals incompetence, right? And so they, they, they then have to prove themselves more because Otherwise, they're going to be perceived as just being there for being there because you know it's cool and trendy to 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 be diverse and and all those things are such a, a problem because then that person inside the system not only has to do their work 
but also fight against these issues, which is why systems need to sort themselves out before they bring in people. Because frankly, it's not useful to bring people in who then have to you know, have the burden of, 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 of being activists in, on top of their actual work. Um, it's, it's not very much worth it. And some people just may, may leave uh, if we don't move beyond. Listen, it's not easy. It's actually quite difficult because these are ingrained, these are generational, this is traditional. Um, and, uh, and we need to be uncomfortable across the board in order to be able to make any, 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 any leeway. Mm -hmm. And, and see, this is why I, I'm really big on collecting disaggregated race-based data within institutions, because I think part of addressing that trendiness of you know, diversity and inclusion is to get a sense. I'm wondering if, sorry, these institutions have actually done the work of getting a sense of who they are as an institution, where they are in terms of their numbers and who is actually being represented. Um, and then using that data to measure their progress as structural changes are being made or, or using that as a form of accountability. I also think race-based data can help bring attention to some of the things that are barriers or disparities that exist that maybe we haven't even thought of yet or that we, we don't even notice. Um, however, I don't think data collection is enough in of itself. I think we need to also question how the data collection was designed. We have to question who is actually analyzing the data and their capacity and their, their politics, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then part of that work too is also action. So the data collection can't just be, you know, for collection's sake. Um, it actually has to be a driving force for targeted and transformative systemic action. And then again, I have so many questions about these diversity and inclusion initiatives that are popping up everywhere in all kinds of workplaces and universities not, because we also have to make sure that the people in positions of power within these institutions um, have the lived experience of the diverse communities that they're supposed to be serving or helping or including or however you want to put it. Um, and then I also question with a lot of these uh, diversity and inclusion initiatives, um, what supports are actually in place for these people once they are hired to make sure that, <clears throat> sorry, once they get within these institutions that they're not further being marginalized. So I think while these initiatives may have quote unquote good intentions, I'm not convinced that the actual hard work has been done to make sure that it's not a form of tokenism. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point to, to, to check a box and try and put someone in place, but then not back them up when they're making decisions that maybe you disagree with or, or that the, um, the board disagree with or, or the community disagree with. Like if, if those support systems aren't in place to then ensure that there's some success then it's, yeah, exactly what you said, tokenism and, and pretty unmeaningful. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I mean, I, I was talking to someone, I think it was from Coach, Coaching Canada or something, someone in Ottawa, at least, and, 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 and I was talking to them about 
the the need to to reach out to those groups that have that have uh, formed outside the system because of the um, uh, of the uh, of the gaps in the system. So there's a there's a black coaching um, coaches association, you know, in Canada, and it would be worth it for the 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 the, the what is it the mainstream organizations to reach out and understand why they need to exist, right? Because we we take it it's it's extremely um, it's a, it's a huge sign, it's huge evidence of of the the lack of support and 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 um, and uh, inequality um, that there's a whole group that goes and forms itself outside of the mainstream in order to 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 provide that support. So it's worth it to um, to to gain to learn from them, to ask them what could be done. Uh, not to wait for the group to to reach out or or to simply make it you know treat it as a norm, but to realize that it is a symptom of the um, of something not working, and 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 reach out to them um, to learn from um, uh, to to learn what may be done in order um, in order not for them to be necessary. Not I mean, ultimately. Um, in in a, in a good in in a, in a utopia, they should not exist. So it's about learning why uh, they exist and, and and what can be done about it. Mm -hmm. um, I want to be respectful of your time. I know that we're already running a little bit over uh, from from that hour that I promised. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll ask one last question to kind of wrap us up. Uh, do you have any other calls of action uh, for coaches or athletes, administrators, you know, parents, even officials? um to to help address some of these issues in in their community um uh, for me i think data no matter what we need data mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. more of it i think that's a, a good starting point but then i think stakeholders have to understand that these issues are systemic and require direct persistent targeted action to be changed um it's not enough to be nice right um or have these feel-good policies right you have to actually change how things are structured how people think how people approach things who is in the room making sure that people who have lived experience are in the room right it's a huge shift in thinking and i think we have to find ways to facilitate that bigger thinking rather than just thinking oh we can just do like a half an hour training or we can be nice and and it'll fix it i think we have to think bigger mm -hmm. yes yeah um what i could add is really i i want to pick up again what Rhonda says about persistence it needs to be persistent. It needs to be specific and targeted, not just say we are an inclusive group, we have an inclusive mission, and not actually do concrete, you know, set up actual concrete actions that can be measured and that can be seen. Um, and, and treating it as something urgent, as something that is problematic, uh, that has been brought to 
everybody's attention for, for many years and that needs to be addressed now, not in 15 years, but that, you know, in order for change to occur in 15 years, it needs to start right this moment. Um, and, and it really is about, uh, uh, you know, interrupting, um, checking each other to say, listen, why, why does this group look like this? Why is it that this room doesn't look like actual Canada? What, what is it? Because understanding that nothing, I think I'm, I'm, I'm repeating myself, but you know, there's no natural about it. It's all um, structures, it's all things we've set up for specific reasons. So it's about questioning why the system is like this and continuing to question. And um, and I think uh, just a big piece of this is a lot of a lot of this happens because people just don't know people because people don't 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 um, don't understand that what happens you know with racialized groups is that racialized groups are people they're just regular people they go for coffee their cars break down they celebrate birthdays uh, you know they're they're people and so learning to see people as people socialized with with them not as black people or xyz people but but as as just people know them learn learn from them listen uh to them um you know hear them and and, and listen to them and implement what they may tell you uh because a, a big piece of this uh, i've been in in the east for a little bit um i i used to live in in ontario and especially in the eastern maritimes there's, there's a lot of people that just have never seen, uh, have, have been networking, have been in a bubble of family and friends and, 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 and schools that are just very homogeneous. And, um, and, 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 they, and, and, and so what they know of the non-white groups are what they see on TV and, and, and maybe sometimes read about. They don't actually know people um, and, and I think there's a, there's a thinker, I forget her name, a black feminist American who said, you know, a lot of, a lot of us, um, well, a lot of people will, or she was talking, I think, about students and on, on, on campuses, about how students will watch Jay-Z and Beyonce and think they know black people. They think, okay, this is what black is. And, and so they'll approach they, they, they will approach the actual concrete, you know, humans in front of them as that image that they've that they've um, that they've constructed for themselves based on these um, these uh, these these uh, caricatures um, and and fail to actually approach them as people who happen to be black. So so it does also start with just enlarging uh, your, your own networks as individuals in order to be able to bring it into work. Um, because uh, at the end of the day, you're not going to be doing much change for anyone if you, if you have never actually connected with these uh, groups that, that, that you uh, propose to integrate into your, um, into your institutions, your, your, your work, um, uh, your work, uh, what is it? Your, your work groups and networks and 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 so on and so forth. So it really just does start with also just expanding one's network um, as much as possible um, 
beyond just work um, and realizing that that will trickle down eventually to, to, mm -hmm. to those systems that we exist in. Mm -hmm. And just to quickly add to urgency, right? I think many people in marginalized communities, they want to live now, they want to thrive now, they want to reach their full potential now, not 50 years from now, three generations from now. <laughs> so I think people need to recognize that when they drag their feet on these things, indirectly, or it's implied that they're asking scores of people to wait indefinitely to fully enjoy their lives and participate in society. So another thing I would want to emphasize is these changes, these shifts, these systemic shifts are quite urgent. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, yeah, I, it's it's tough, to, especially if you're if you're a coach who wants to start making this change on your team, and you want to be supportive, and you're not finding a lot of support around you. Uh, that can also be really challenging, and and I think you both made great points around just it, it's. I think the 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 change starts with personal connection, and then once people feel like they have some skin in the game, so to say, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, no pun intended, um, then uh, then I I feel like from there it. it like the 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 sense of urgency and the sense of like like oh these are my friends these are my members of my community these are my teammates that that are experiencing pain or experiencing um discomfort and and i i can't stand for that um so i would i would say to any of the the coaches or athletes or anyone working in sport or even within their own community to uh yeah to listen with empathy and and compassion and um and act as if it was your own family member kind of like stuck in the situation. So um, th that's the thing for me. And, and if you're having a hard time uh, opening up this line of dialogue with some of your colleagues, like maybe maybe this podcast is a good thing to send to them and say like, hey, have a listen to this. Let me know your thoughts. Just doesn't have to be one way or another. Um, I uh, A while ago, I was listening to a podcast that was talking about vaccine hesitancy and how to convince um well it was vaccine hesitancy and it was uh talking a little bit about like why am i losing my old family members to fox news and 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 to that kind of that kind of that kind of um uh what's the word i'm looking for discord um and it, a lot of it just comes from uh they feel like they when when someone goes to argue with them or some debate them about about what they're starting to believe and what they're what they're experiencing, it doesn't help to to kind of bash someone over the head and say like, don't you believe in science? Don't you this? Don't you that? Mm -hmm. Because then that person puts person on on the defensive and and closes them down to receiving any kind of criticism or or um, constructive conversation. So it, it I think to me it's really about starting like, hey, we're gonna start having this conversation. We're gonna start having this conversation a lot. So um, mm -hmm. it, it and we don't have to agree on things in the beginning, and we can set that that stage right in the beginning if that's the case. But we are gonna start working on towards this, and and uh, I want to hear your side of it. I really want to understand where you're coming from, and mm -hmm. then I want you to listen uh, listen with an open heart and open mind to what I have to say, and and. I, I think a lot of conversations can start rolling from that point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it does. It's 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 work really, um, and it's a life, I suppose, just in general that requires just empathy and and relating to people as not just 
somehow people want to take things from you or or not being exactly like you say I like that the not being on the defensive and recognizing that yeah there you're gonna hit some uncomfortable grounds um and we all do like I I I, uh, I recognize that I'm not where I could be for, you know, in supporting um, uh, disabled people, for instance, or, or the LGBTQ community, and I keep working on it. I don't consider that they need to help me, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, through it. It is my, my work to do. Um, mm-hmm. They are my, my allies. I, 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 I turn it around because the problem is not with me, the, 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 the issues that they face because of the society that upholds me as, um, as a heterosexual person or as an able person is, is uh, you know, they're, it's, I need to fix it, not they, I, and they need to, uh, they are my allies in fixing my broken society. So it's mm-hmm. it, seeing it that way that it's about learning and keeping, you know, just trying to grow and recognizing that you're gonna mess up. You're gonna use some words that are probably not great, and and just recognizing and not being on, um, not being on 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 defensive all the time, which is not easy. I recognize this world we live in. You put your foot wrong, and all of a sudden the, the sky is falling. Um, it's not simple, but um, yeah, it just requires. It's a small sacrifice then. A, a lifetime of always being on the um, always being uh, vigilant because you never know what space is going to actually accept you for you and not for some caricature of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rhonda, any any final thoughts? It was very interesting that you brought up vaccine hesitancy because I'm actually doing some health research right now, and I think one of the biggest things that are coming out of that work is the ability for people to adequately listen to each other because sometimes when we're discussing some of these difficult topics the ability to actually hear what the other person is saying and why it's an issue or if we're talking about vaccine hesitancy why people may be afraid to get vaccinated there's this gap in our ability to really listen and understand and often we can be dismissive in terms of not really understanding why certain people may feel a particular way about certain things. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's really important for both sides of the coin, no matter where you stand on particular issues, to actively try to listen and understand and empathize with the other side. Because I think once there's actual genuine understanding, then we can start talking solutions. But if both mm-hmm. sides are just talking at each other and there isn't a good understanding, mm-hmm. It's just going to keep continuing and reproducing itself. And those groups are going to become more and more polarized. Mm-hmm. True. If you've prepared what to say about to someone before you've actually heard what they have to say to you, then you've lost that, that discussion already, right? Because you listen to them, you already have your points and, and screw <laughs> uh, no matter what they should be saying. They, they, they've, they've said or prepared on, the, on their side, yeah. Yep. I, I totally agree. But on that note, uh, I wanted to say thank you to you both for, for taking the time today and, and having this conversation with me um, and, and sharing it so that we could we could share this conversation out to the larger coaching community in New Brunswick. I know today was maybe a little bit lighter on the sports side of things than we normally go, but I, I, I think that this is still so applicable to what's going on in sport communities, what's going on in your school, what's going on in your workplace and your family. 
um, and and uh, yeah, it could be heard by a lot of people. Mm -hmm. No, for having us, it was great. Um, it was great talking to you this afternoon. Yeah, thank you. And everybody else, thank you for listening in. Thank you for taking the time to to listen openly and and to uh, hopefully take the moment to to check your own biases and and kind of examine what's going on in your own sport community. This this episode is really meant to spark a conversation, uh, even if that's in your own household, in your own team. Um, we want to provide the uh, the the hand that opens the door, I guess, uh, to to start having some of these conversations to change what's going on. I hope everyone out there is staying safe, uh, keeping well, keeping active outside if they can, um, and and enjoying their spring. And, and until next time, um, enjoy your practice.